Welcome to GayRomance.show, the MM author podcast where we get to hear from the writers of our favorite LGBTQ fiction and their collaborators. We're talking about the creative process behind these characters and their worlds. I'm your host, Slade James. It is Friday, November 29th, 2019, as I record this introduction. This week I'm speaking with audiobook narrator Kurt Graves. Kurt is most known for his work in the MM romance genre, from his first audiobook, T.J. Klune's Wolf Song, to more recent titles like J. Bell's Straight Boy, and of course, one of my personal favorite MM books and audiobooks ever, Nev Wilder's Want Me. Kurt and I talk about everything from the creative process, to the technology involved, to the importance of having authentic gay characters and voices in media. If you're a fan of audiobooks, this is a peek into the studio behind the words. And if you're an author considering transitioning into audio, this is also a frank discussion of the cost of production that Kurt discusses with prospective clients. That conversation is coming up in just a few moments. In personal news, since this is a longer episode, I'll keep it brief. Biggest recent milestones. I finished NaNoWriMo 2019 about four days early this time. A big shout out to Brittany Knoyer for doing sprints with me. I write at 2.30 in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time, which doesn't seem to be the most popular time. I just assumed nobody else was doing them when I needed to. Thankfully, Brittany saw a post that I made about my word counts flagging in the middle of NaNo, and she messaged me. And I gotta say, sprints with Brittany have been a game changer for me. So if that time frame works for you too, get in touch and maybe you can do some sprints with us. That would be cool. I went to my boyfriend Stevie's family's for Thanksgiving yesterday. This was my first time ever going to a holiday with a significant other in my whole life. It was our three-month mark as well. Now, since it's not a year, it's not an anniversary. I know people say three-month anniversary, but it's technically our third mensiversary, which is a slightly ridiculous word. I have gotten to know several of his family members, so I wasn't going into the gathering cold. His family's Thanksgiving was a lot of fun. They rented a lodge in Cloudland Canyon State Park on the western edge of Lookout Mountain. There was karaoke, a lottery game with cash prizes, tons of cornhole, which I love, yes, all kinds, and we ended the evening or the day with a private drive, just the two of us, to an overlook at sunset. The sunset was unbelievably red. I posted some pics on Facebook so you can see them. There were also tons of deer everywhere. It was very romantic. I missed my family's food, but my mom saved me little bits of some of my favorites, and I had a whole second round of Thanksgiving when I got home that night. And I've never finished a Thanksgiving day with cuddling, so, you know, hell yeah to that. Sugars, as Stevie calls them. Before I forget, I want to thank you for sharing the show with friends and leaving a review on iTunes. Both of those are entirely free ways you can support the show that have a huge positive impact on its visibility. I do want to say a quick thank you to my newest supporter on Patreon, Shawana Strader. Thank you to all of you who continue to pledge your support. It demonstrates that you're enjoying the show and you want it to continue. 
to find out how you can become a patron and support my time in producing more and more of these episodes, please go to patreon.com slash James. I am a huge whisper sinker. I prefer to read ebooks in KU and then get that good discount for the Audible audiobook. I've looked at the numbers a million times, and this is still technically a better deal for me than an actual Audible subscription. I love being able to hop onto my latest bookmark and just pick up with the audio in my car when I'm driving. When Nev Wilder released the audiobook of her novel Want Me, she knew I wanted to interview creative collaborators in this genre as well as the authors, particularly a few of the men who are narrators, and she recommended Kirk Graves to me. I immediately fell for his voice and his performance style. And then I had the pleasure of meeting him almost right away in Albuquerque at GRL. I knew from our first few chats that Kurt's perspective on audiobook production would be an excellent resource to have out there. This episode has something for everyone. Fans of storytelling, future narrators, and authors who are looking to produce audio versions of their work. It's an interview I've been dying to do from the moment I started this show. And we begin with me asking Kurt how he came to be working in this format and in this genre. Well, my background in getting into audiobooks, I think, is in some ways very common and in other ways pretty unique. Um, I do have a background in theater, but it's community theater. You know, it was theater in school. Um, I didn't go to college for for any theater training or anything like that. Um, I, I, I hate to say that that means I don't have any theater education because I think a lot of theater education happens in creating a stage production. And I've had the great privilege to work with um, really wonderful directors from all over the country uh, and been able to, to benefit from their education. Um, so I would say I have a, a practical education in, in theater, um, but it's not how I was making my living before I started doing audiobooks. I was, for the most part, working in an office, and then I had a side job where I was coaching my local high school speech and debate team um, in Wisconsin. We call that activity forensics. And a lot of people, when they hear the word forensics or they hear speech and debate, they can uh, they can picture like the kid standing behind a podium talking into a microphone. Um, and that really does encompass like the speech and debate side. But what a lot of people don't know about that activity is there are two other uh, big categories that other uh, activities fall into, and that's uh, interpretation of literature and acting. And so for 15 years, I have been participating in or coaching uh, students in interpretation of literature and in solo, duo, or small group acting pieces. And one of the things that that really gave me the ability to do is to quickly and efficiently take in text, internalize it, and be able to emote uh, in a very short period of time. And then not only to be able to do that myself, but then as a coach to have to develop the skills to teach someone else how to do that. And with every student discovering their vocabulary for how to approach a text and how to be able to find some connection to it and how to be able to express that connection to an audience. And so through a an unconventional and you know, not uh, college classroom structured way, 
I think I've been taking a master class in how to interpret text and in teaching it to others, learn, excuse me, and in teaching it to others, really learned how to, uh, you know, learned a lot of different ways to be able to approach it. Um, so that even as I entered the world of audiobooks, I had different methods for how to approach text. Um, and, and I don't approach every book the same way. And I think that the gift of forensics was teaching me it's okay to try it differently, you know, find your way into the text, whatever way works. And then it also really gave me the ability to, uh, to think about how to create voices for different characters because I'd been working with kids on doing that for years and years. There are uh, categories in forensics that are all about solo acting, where the student does a 10-minute piece, and they're playing 10 different characters. And so learning how to differentiate those characters without costumes or, or set pieces or makeup, you know, it became all about physicality and voice. And even though you don't see the audiobook narrator um, doing his or her performance, that physicality and that voice is what comes through on the microphone. The flip side of that is that I was also really interested in podcasting. I loved listening to podcasts and I loved uh, creating podcasts. And I, I have one, in fact, about coaching high school forensics. And so on the while I was, uh, you know, taking my master class in how to interpret literature, I was also learning how to work a microphone and how to process sound. And so sometime in 2016, a friend of mine mentioned that she had started doing these audiobooks online. You don't need to go to a studio. You can build your own studio at home and, and you can audition online and interact with authors. And that's through a program called ACX. And uh, I was like, well, that sounds like, like fun. And I was frustrated in my day job and I wasn't doing you know, anything creative for myself. I was giving so much of my energy to my work and to coaching that um, it just sounded like a really cool thing to try. And because I had both the tech and the performance background in my own unique way, I jumped in. And um, it was not an overnight success. It took months and months of auditions before I got my first, uh, first hit. Um, but I was very fortunate that at some point along the way, I auditioned for TJ Klune's Wolf Song, and uh, he heard something in my performance that he responded to and decided to give me a shot, even though I had never done anything before. And um, he kind of plucked me from obscurity and then put me into the male-male romance genre. Uh, and uh, and now here I am, just a few years later. So it's really thanks to him and and what he heard in that initial performance that I'm here today. So were you interested particularly in performing a certain type of audiobook or were you just putting yourself out there like anybody hire me to read anything? I was looking for things that I would enjoy doing. Um, again, I think that's part of my forensics background is that I had spent so much time telling teenagers to find something that you engage with. Uh, because if you don't engage with the material, you're going to have a hell of a time trying to make it interesting to somebody else. So I was auditioning for a lot of things that were uh, sci-fi and fantasy, because those are genres that I really enjoy reading, uh, especially like contemporary urban fantasies um, or young adult work. 
And so what initially drew me to the audition for Wolf Song was the fact that it was like a contemporary urban fantasy. There's a werewolf and there's, um, you know, there's also an element of like starting in childhood and then it transitions to adulthood. So I'd get my little fix of YA. So that's what really, that's what attracted me to it. You know, other than that, I was doing a lot of auditions for like sci-fi space operas and books where like kids were meeting wizards and then going off to save the world. Um, so it was really just kind of by chance that I landed in, in male, male romance. Was TJ's book, the first male, male romance that you read? No, I had read as a teenager. Um, Oh, and I meant to look this up. It's it's not it's uh these I mean these were books that were written in like the 50s and 60s that I kind of like found through whatever, you know, online resources that were available at that point in time when I was in high school um that were, you know, pretty chaste but they seemed kind of, you know, scandalous to me at the time. Um stories of like just young men falling in love. It wasn't Gordon Merrick, was it? It was Gordon Merrick. Wow. Okay. Because yes. I'm just a little bit older than you, and I was thinking, internet? Wow. Wish I'd had internet. But I was thinking about those few, few books that would have been available to somebody back then, and that's one of those that I found through, I guess, Sheer Gaydar <laughs> or whatever. Right. And I'm trying to think back on, on what it was that would have led me to them and you know, the only place I could really express my sexuality at that point was um, online. So it must have been somehow in some, um, you know, group or something that mm -hmm. but that's how I found it. That's them, crazy. So. We're, we're going to have to go research some Gordon and, and throw some mm -hmm. links up because I haven't thought of that in a million years. And when you said that, I, I flashed back. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, rabbit hole. <laughs> and you know, oh, you know what? It, well, okay, here it is. Now I'm, I'm remembering. Okay, so the first book is called The Lord Won't Mind. Yes, I read that. And I think, I think somehow I thought that it would also have like a Christian aspect to it. And one of the things that I struggled with as a young gay man is that I was also raised Catholic. And so I, there was a, a, a push and pull between my faith and my burgeoning sexuality. And so I think just the fact that the word Lord was in the title, somehow I, I glommed onto that. And then I read it and realized like, oh, no, 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 this is not a religious book by any means. Uh, but it was a love story, a complicated love story between two young men. And I, you know, it didn't give me a lot of hope for the future, frankly. <laughs> Nothing but did back then. <laughs> nor did any, nor did any media coming from that period of time. And really like up into the early 2000s, not a lot of it gave me much hope. So what, um, so are you narrating other genres or have you just always stayed kind of in this male, male romance lane? It's mostly male, male romance. I've done one male, female romance, one male, male, female romance now, um, uh, a series with an author called uh, Maria, oh, I think it's Maria Lisa DeMora. So I'm doing, I'm doing that, but she found me through my male, male work. I did one sci-fi book early on that I auditioned for and got, um, and then I've done one nonfiction book through Tantor that they gave me for reasons beyond explanation. But other than that, I have more 
I have just done male male romance. And that is not at all by design. It is by happenstance. And it is the typical thing that happens with actors in that if you do one thing well, people start to think of you as somebody who does that thing well, and then they will keep coming back to you to do that thing. I am not complaining about that. It has gotten me lots of work. It will continue to get me lots of work. I love telling queer stories, but I definitely have been in some casting director's minds pigeonholed to a certain type. Mm. At least there is a variety within the male male world. You know, it like queer culture itself, it, you know, kind of moves into so many different areas. At least mm-hmm. there's some variety in the the type of, of stories. I'm interested, like most people have heard of ACX. I'm familiar with the concept of of narrators putting their um, audition files up on ACX and authors finding them that way and producing directly through this Amazon-owned company. Explain to me how the um, Tantor, the working with them, works. I'm not really as clear about that. Sure. Well, Tantor is a production house. So what they do is they buy up audio rights to books from other people. So they'll either approach the author directly or they'll approach a smaller independent uh, production house uh, or uh, an independent uh, publisher, something like like Dream Spinner Press, who has done a lot of work in the male-male romance genre. And they will say, like, we'll, we'll pay you for these audio rights and then we'll handle the entire production side. And then depending on the contract they work out with that author or that uh, publisher, you know, there's, you know, still royalties on the back end or whatever. I don't know their entire business model. But the thing that they do is they say, you've got a book, we'll turn it into an audiobook. And once it starts making money, um, not only will Tantor make their money back and they'll start making a profit, but then you also as the author will have to, will have invested nothing and you will be able to still make some money on the audio rights of the book. And so it's uh, their, their gamble is that they're going to buy up the rights to a lot of different books, having no idea which ones will sell, and hope that they have enough books that sell really well to make up for the ones that don't. And so that's the, their business model. And then what they do is they find talent and you have to, you know, apply to become a part of their roster. And then their casting director from time to time sends an email saying, hey, we think you might be good for this. Do you want to be submitted for it? And we go from there. So you do have to apply to be one of their narrators. They're not finding you on ACX, for example. You know, it's going to be a different process for everybody. I, I'd be surprised if they found you through ACX, but I don't think that's impossible. I think they constantly have their eyes and ears open for new talent. Um, they found me through Dream Spinner specifically because I was doing work for TJ Klune through Dream Spinner. And if, uh, if Dream Spinner was going to make a deal with Tantor, one of their conditions was that the narrators who had started series would be able to finish them. And if that was to be the case, I would have to get approved by Tantor. And once I was, then Tantor started sending me more work. So do you find, do you get more projects through Tantor or through ACX? Absolutely through Tantor. ACX, um, the, this will just be you know a reality check for anybody who's thinking about getting into it. When I started in ACX three years ago, it was already you know a pretty grim 
uh, like the numbers were grim because you were looking at hundreds of thousands of projects to audition for um, and maybe mm, 3,000 narrators. And even at that ratio, it was tough getting work um, because a lot of those jobs on ACX are royalty share only. And they are for books that have sold zero copies. They have zero reviews, <laughs> you know. And so you you look at that as a narrator who wants to make money, and you you're thinking, well, I can't I can't do those. So by the time you start filtering out all of the ones that are only royalty share and you know will not make money, you're down to like twenty to thirty to audition for, and there's three thousand people, you know. So that, I mean, and that was three years ago. Now it's even worse. If you go in there and you search just for the ones that are paying like a union rate, uh, you're getting a handful. Uh, half of those may be ones you don't, you know, aren't appropriate for you or you don't think you're right for. And then, you know, they must just get inundated with auditions from from all over the place. And like with any acting gig, sometimes you're going to be right for it and sometimes you're not. There's really no way to to just be right for every book. There's no skill that you can acquire. There's no coaching you can do to be right for everything. You have to wait your turn and be right for the books you're right for. So I still occasionally will will send in a, a cold audition on ACX, but more so ACX for me is a way to work with authors. So if an author reaches out to me and says, hey, I'd love to work with you, and I, you know, we negotiate the rate and everything. Then at that point, I can say like, well, what platform do you want to use? There's a few we can look at, you know, the biggest of them being ACX. And then we kind of talk through all of that. And um, and so mostly ACX is now a platform that I use for creating audiobooks, mm -hmm. not so much a way that I get work. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know that that's still part of the the picture are you familiar with this other company called findaway voices that is um partnered with draft to digital is that on your radar at all yeah i'm in fact i'm on their roster um i have i have never gotten any work through them so okay all right i was just curious about that as well um as somebody who you know i'm personally interested in really just producing my own stuff more than than anything else and so you know it it's um I'm curious about like is one of the ben benefits with Tantor are they doing a lot of the post production for you you know taking the files and cleaning them up and you know leveling them and doing all that kind of stuff on their end yes so that's yeah that's the big um, one of the big positives of working with Tantor um, the first one is that I mean from a narrator perspective, they're just lovely to work with. They're great. Oh, okay. Um, That's good to know. That's very cool. And it is. I mean, to me, it's a big part of, of what you do. Like you don't want to work with assholes and they absolutely nothing but great to me. Um, the second thing is that, yeah, they do all of that work on the back end. So all you have to worry about is narrating the story, interpreting a great, a great story. That's all you worry about. And then you send it off to them to do the rest of the work. And then the third reason is that they pay a union rate. Ah, so which is important. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. And if they're paying a union rate and doing most of the work for you. Yeah, that's really good. Um, well, before we get into the, like the creative process of actually doing all the recording, something that that you mentioned to me 
uh, before we started the conversation. There was a panel at GRL. I know Lucy Lennox was on it. May Archer, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And Susie Hawk. And Susie Hawk. Tell us a little bit, it, for those who missed that panel, um, they were really, as you said, doing some truth-telling for authors who are considering mm-hmm. uh, getting into audiobook production. What were some takeaways that you feel like you really want to get out there to everyone who's thinking about doing this? Yeah, I was really relieved to to sit in on that panel and be very happy with the information that they were giving out. Um, one of the conversations that I have the most with authors are ones who reach out to me um, to maybe uh, they're approaching me to do the work myself, or sometimes they might just be reaching out for advice. Um, They've seen me on some social media platform or in some group and feel comfortable asking me questions, and that's great. It's a part of the job. I like that part. But a lot of them have said to me over the last couple of years, you know, there's this notion inside of some of these indie author groups that I'm a part of where they say, if you're paying your narrator up front, you're wasting money because there's this great royalty share thing that you can do on ACX where you don't pay anything up front and then you just split the royalties on the back end. And so anybody, any narrator who's trying to tell you that their work costs money is lying to you. And, I, and I've had more than one author tell me they've heard that in these author groups. And so that's part of why I wanted to go to that session and just hear how authors talk to other authors about audiobooks. And I was really relieved that none of that uh, happened at their panel. They were very clear about if you want quality work, you have to pay for it. And uh, I mean, they didn't go into the the details of what it it takes to narrate an audiobook, which we will talk about. Um, but they they had an understanding for and an appreciation of the work, both technical and creative, that has to go into creating a separate piece of art, which was a big part of what they talked about. And I was so grateful to hear that coming from authors that they've created a work of art. They've created their book, but to create an audiobook is, is a separate thing. It's and to a certain degree, they said, and I agree with the author has to let go of their work of art and let it become somebody else's work of art. Um, that couldn't exist without their contribution to it. But the author can't control the process once they've trusted another artist to do the work. And so a lot of that conversation was about, well, how do you find the right person? Um, and, you know, they, they talked about how they found their people by listening to the work they've done in other areas. Or, you know, Lucy talked about her audition process for uh, Maid Marian, where she ultimately ended up finding Michael Pauly and just loves working with him and loves his voice. And they have a great relationship now. Um, but, you know, what, what you're really doing when you're an author and you're trying to find somebody to narrate your book is you're looking for an artist who's going to recognize the integrity of what you've created, appreciate the artistry that you've already put into it, and then is going to be able to run and turn it into something, um, I don't want to say better, but something different. You know, something that is something separate and apart from just the text that somebody would read on a page, uh, because now there is a performance involved and there are choices that have to be made for the listener uh, that, you know, the listener doesn't get to read the text and then decide, you know, if the person said that in a certain way, the narrator is going to make that choice for you. And so you have to trust them to do that. 
And sometimes they may surprise you and they may see something in a character that you've written that you didn't see. And then, you know, Lucy talked about that happening with Michael where she was like, okay, go for it. And she said, you know, it's one of the things that her listeners love the most. Um, so aside from valuing the work and realizing that you're going to have to pay for it and that you want to pay for it uh, up front because then it still belongs to you, the rights still belong to you and all the royalties will go to you and just, you know, that that's a smart business decision. Um, the other thing they talked about that I appreciated was just that, that trusting and that letting go. Yeah, I don't think I had any real understanding about how much author input the authors expected to have during the recording or before you start recording. So uh, let's just get into the nitty gritty of like mm -hmm. how you do the recording process, starting with the selection process. Like, you know, um, when we were at GRL together, um, Daryl Banner and you had just gotten together to do his latest title, correct? Are you still working mm -hmm. on that project? Um, I will be working on that in December. So that's it's on the calendar. But yeah, while I was at GRL, I got an email from Tantor saying, Heteroflexible by Daryl Banner is a title that we're doing. We thought of you for it. Are you interested? And I immediately, because I had listened to his interview on this podcast, <laughs> awesome. and I knew that he was at GRL, um, I was like, yes, that's the type of book I want to do. And so I emailed them right back. And then, you know, I sent you a Facebook message and was right. like, hey, go tell Daryl that I'm great. <laughs> and I did, but I don't even think it mattered. I think I think he th heard yeah, you he and thought you were, didn't even get the message. Yeah, he thought you were great anyway on his own. So it all worked out. But so from that point um, mm -hmm. where, you know, an author says yes, walk me through the process. I mean, you can do it kind of more generally or if you want to make it about, you know, s something specific that you've worked on either way. Um, but. I'm really curious to be a fly on the wall. Like what goes mm -hmm. into creating this from your perspective? Well, it really depends on the project um, because it's a very different process when you're working through a third party like Tantor or if you're working directly with the author. The author at the front end can and should have as much input as they want. That is the time to tell us all of the, the things that you want to make sure we got out of the book um, or the things that weren't written down but that you feel strongly about. If you hear a certain character in a certain way um, or there's something about their background that we don't find out until book four that we should know from the very beginning, all of that information up front is very helpful. Then there is a a part when you're working directly with an author, uh, especially through ACX, but really through most of those platforms, where you submit a sample of the first part of the book or, or a, a representative part of the book. It doesn't always have to be the first 15 minutes, but they call it the first 15. So you send in a scene, they listen to it, and it's their opportunity to hear your tone, how you're approaching some of the characters, uh, your pacing, your diction, all of that kind of stuff. And then they have the opportunity to say at that point, like, here are some things that I'd love to hear differently, um, or you nailed it, you're good to go. Somehow through that first 15 process, you agree on the tone and the character voices. And then at that point, the author has to let go. 
because now we're going to go record the rest of the book. And we're not going to be checking in. We're not going to be submitting chapter by chapter to make sure that you like every single thing we're doing. It's now in our hands. Um, you have given your baby to somebody else to take care of. And we're going to take care of that baby. And we're going to do the best job we possibly can. And then at the very end of the recording, we're going to send you the files and you'll get another chance to listen to the whole thing. And at that point, it's appropriate to tell us, you know, if we really messed up um, a sentence or we said kitchen instead of chicken or something like that, um, you know, tell us our, our major mistakes. It is not okay at the very end of the process to try to reveal something to us about the characters that we didn't know mm. that now affects how we've recorded the whole book. Mm. Because you'd be essentially asking us to do it again. So author input up front, I just like I would encourage anybody who's listening to this who's an author, like tell us as much as you possibly can before we start. Because that's uh when when we are we are sponges and we are soaking up everything you're telling us. And that doesn't mean that like if you tell us uh, you know, I I picture this person sounding like Matthew McConaughey, that I'm going to go try to do a Matthew McConaughey impression. It's, it's not going to be a, a mimic. I'm not going to try to mimic something you tell me. But like Matthew McConaughey has a certain like easiness to him, a certain swagger that like that tells me a lot about who the character is. And it's going to help inf inform my performance in a really useful way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So do you... Um... Are you reading the whole book beforehand? Are you marking it up? Like, do you have some kind of system for highlighting the different voices that you're doing? Like, tell me some about some about that part of the process. Sure. And I think, again, this is different for every narrator. I think we all have our own process and none of them are wrong. Except for this. You, do, you have to know what happens at the end of the book before you start recording the beginning of the book. And so when asked, do you read the book? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is yes, but that doesn't always mean I've read every single word on every single page. What I do is I make sure that, especially if it's a new author who I've never worked with before, I'm going to read, you know, every word on every page for the first couple of chapters at least. Because I want to get a sense of how they write. I want to get a sense of the tone of the story. I want to get a sense of who these people are and a sense of the world building that has happened. And sometimes that happens all in the first couple chapters and you're good to go. Sometimes it takes half the book. Sometimes it takes the whole book. But there may be a point in my prepping when I have read enough of the book that I understand the world and the characters. And at that point, I'm going to start skimming. And I'm going to look for major plot points. I'm going to look for new characters as they come into the story so that I can identify them and get a good idea of who they are and what their voice is. And I'm going to, and I'm going to read through to the end of the story to make sure that I know how it ends, just in case something at the end of the book affects things that happen at the beginning of the book. I don't want to be surprised as I'm reading. In that way, you know, I have read the book. Have I read every single word of every single sentence? Maybe not. But that doesn't change how I would interpret the text, and so I think that that's okay. Some people read every single word of every single page. Some people skim the whole thing. You know, 
if I'm doing a series and it's the fifth book in the series and the world is established and I already know all the characters, then I'm really skimming the whole thing. I'm looking for major plot points and any new characters. And then that way I'm able to go into it still fully informed and fully invested. But it's not important that I've read every, you know, every turn of phrase or every single, every single word. Because those discoveries can happen still in the moment. And if I mess up in the moment, I can stop, I can go back, and I can fix. When there's another narrator in a dual POV book, are you guys interacting with with each other beforehand and doing any kind of strategy sessions? To a degree. And again, it's going to depend on who you're working with. Um, It's mostly just a few email correspondences. And you just, you know, you read the book, you see what characters you have that cross over. Um, Inevitably, one person ends up recording before the other. And so usually that person then takes the lead and saying, okay, well, since I'm recording first, this is how I interpreted this person. And then you can send a description and sometimes we'll even send voice files just back and forth to each other just so we can hear uh, how that person interpreted something. And then the other person does their best to stay faithful to that interpretation, again, without trying to like mimic their exact uh, performance, because it's very rare that two narrators sound enough alike that they could do that successfully. And at that point, it would defeat the point of having two narrators for the book anyways. So it's usually just a few emails back and forth. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Okay, that sounds good. Or, um, you know, I have had it happen where one person was like, hey, this is how I'm thinking your main character is going to sound. And I had to come back and be like, no, that's that's not how that my main character is going to sound uh, because I don't sound like that. So, <laughs> so we're not going to do it that way. And But it's, it's usually very, very friendly, very, um, you know, in, in the way that an author has to respect the work of a narrator, a narrator has to respect the work of another narrator. And you just have to, at a certain point, say, I'm going to do the best job possible that I can, and I'm going to do what I can to respect the choices of my fellow narrator, but I want my parts to be really, really good. And I, I don't want my performance to be hampered by thinking I need to mimic or impersonate somebody else's performance. And so I think as long as there's that healthy understanding between narrators, we can move forward confidently knowing that we won't be perfectly in sync, voices won't sound exactly the same, but that if we've honored each other's choices, it will still make sense to the listener. Right. So you're recording the work. What does it look like on a daily basis for you in the studio? What kind of hours are you putting in? You know, is there a limit on how much you can do per day? It, I know it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. It's every day is different. Um, this is you and I were talking about this before we got onto the official uh, episode recording. Uh, but I actually have a new office that I'm creating because I would like it to be more consistent. Right now, I record in my home office. I, my house is in the middle of a residential neighborhood on a busy street near an airport and near Lambeau Field. <laughs> As much as I would love to say like, oh, yeah, I sit down from like nine to two every Monday through Friday and that's when I get my work done, that doesn't happen because sometimes I can go in on a Monday morning at nine o'clock and I can get 
you know, if I'm if my goal is to get 50 pages done or 75 pages done, I can get that done before lunch because it's quiet and I'm in the zone and I'm going good. Some days I sit down at 9 a.m. and my neighbor is mowing their lawn. So now I'm, you know, not working until my neighbor's done mowing his lawn. <laughs> and then I, you know, so then I don't start until 10. And then I get hungry around 1130 and my stomach's rumbling. So then I have to go, you know, I have to go eat something because the only way to make your stomach shut up is to feed it. And then I'll get back in around one. And then, you know, then I'm, you know, not as productive in the afternoon as I usually am in the mornings. That has been true for my entire life. It does not matter if that was when I was in high school or when I was at a desk job. I'm just better in the mornings. So then, you know, my afternoons are a bit more of a struggle and what would have maybe taken me an hour in the morning will take me two in the afternoon. And then maybe something else happens and another neighbor is mowing their lawn or the city decides it's going to trim some trees. And so then I go make dinner. I sit down to dinner with my husband. I come back at night and I finish stuff up. So usually what I'm looking at is I'm trying to get a certain number of words or pages in in a day and try to negotiate all of the distractions that happen working from home in a, in a noisy neighborhood and try to get that, uh, that done. So what does that look like day-to-day basis? I don't even know when I wake up in the morning. But with my new booth in my new space, which is a much quieter area of town, and I have my, my double-walled, isolated room within a room, Hopefully, I will be able to go in and I will be able to say, I can get this much done between nine and two, and then I'll be able to schedule that. As it is, sometimes I work weekends, sometimes I don't. It depends on how much I got done during the week. Some days I work five hours, some days I work three hours, some days I work 10 hours. I joke that the soundtrack to my podcast should just be leaf blowers, wood chippers, and other gardening tools because then it would just be intentional. Um, it actually is kind of comforting to me to hear that somebody who produces the work that you produce has those same issues because I feel like I have the most shabby setup in the whole world. And you, you know what I mean? Like I picture all these like glamorous studios and, and I'm so far from that. It's not even funny. Well, I hope to be a little more glamorous in the near future, but really it's very like, and I, because that's how I thought of it at first too. Like, oh man, someday when I'm able to have that booth, like then I'll have really made it. Well, now I'm really realizing it's more utilitarian than glamorous. I need that space. I need it to be, you know, only the loudest of loud cars or motorcycles that interrupt me because it means I'll be able to do more and better work. And that, and and mentally, I'll be able to know what my days look like and how important that is uh, when approaching a job. So I'm really excited about this new phase um, in my career because, yeah, all of these outside distractions are just annoying, and then they get in the way of a good performance. Yeah, because it's frustrating, and you you get angry, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. you have a hard time shaking it off. It's yeah. you know, kind of blown your day. And as much as I complain about it, like I'm living in a city in Wisconsin, it's fairly rural. Like there are narrators who do this work full time who are like in the middle of New York City. So (laughs) they're dealing with noises all the time as well. And all we do is just stop and wait for the noise to pass. And then you go back and you punch in in the audio right where you left off and you pick it up from there. So no, no audiobook narrator is sitting in a perfectly quiet NPR studio. (laughs) 
Right. Uh, I mean, the, the cost of making a truly soundproof space is astronomical. Yeah. So the best you can do is like soundproof it a little, deaden the sound inside that space as best you can, and then work around the outside noises. So tell us about this new, your new setup that you're building. Like, I want to know what is the booth? What is the space? What kind of tools are you using? For those of us who are out there that, that are going to nerd out on your tech, mm-hmm. tell us all about it. So I decided to go with a booth uh, from Studio Bricks. And um, the best way I've thought of to uh, describe this to people who have never seen it, although you should Google it because it's really impressive, is they basically have created an entire booth out of um, like pieces. It's their modular pieces that sort of fit into each other like Legos. So you you can assemble and disassemble this booth and move it around if you need to. And I, for one, know that like, okay, so I'm renting this new office space. I'm really excited about it, but it's a commercial space and somebody could move in next door who's like running a daycare. Well, that's going to mess me up. So then I might have to leave and find another office. So it was really important to me that my booth solution be portable and be pretty easy to move around. And so that's why I went with Studio Bricks. But there's lots of other booths like uh, WhisperSync um, and, and other solutions that are out there that just have larger pieces. They're still modular. They'll still come apart, but they're just bigger and harder to move around. But the thing that's important about the booth is it's double walled. And so what that does is like there's a wall and then there's some soundproof padding and then there's another wall. And that separation is really what helps you with soundproofing. And so if I wanted to do that inside my home, I'd have to like literally build out, build like a room inside a room, which would then make my already pretty small closet even tighter and tinier. Um, and part of the the decision for me to go to a space outside my house is also just like for my own mental health. Like I have decided I'm not good at working from home because I get sick of being at home all the time. So I'm excited about having a space that's dedicated to this and this work that I can go and be productive in. And then at the end of the day, when I'm done, I can be excited to come back into my home again. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so that's that's the booth. Can pick it up, can move it around. Um, it has that double wall, uh, making sure that all the sounds uh, stay out. It also has an air ventilator. So, like right now, I'm just sitting in my closet that I outfitted for narrating audiobooks. And especially during the summer when it gets a little muggy or I start to feel like, oh, I'm having a harder time taking a deep breath. Well, it's because I've sealed myself in a room that's not like airtight, but it it's there's no air flow. So, like, I'll have to stop and just open the door and let the door hang open for a couple minutes just to like replace the air every, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in the booth and then close it again and then go back to recording. This has a quiet little ventilator that's going to just pump fresh air in at all times. And I'm not going to have to worry about things like that. It also has a door with a window. So I'll be able to see sunlight (laughs) while I work. Like these are the important things. Sure, the, like, you, want, you want a decent microphone and blah, 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 blah. I'm going to be able to see sunlight <laughs> like during the day. How exciting is that? 
Yes, I don't think people realize the number of podcasts and audio productions that are produced inside closets. Um, I have these um, industrial blankets hanging over my windows. And so I'm sitting Mm -hmm. in a space that is midnight dark and I'm in my underwear, which is one of the reasons we're not doing this in video (laughs) because I've got the (laughs) air turned off. So there's no air noise. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So um, what kind of uh, software are you recording with? I'm an Adobe guy. So I record on Adobe Audition and I edit uh, in Adobe Audition. And then I process as well through uh, RX6 from Isotope. And you, you mentioned that you have some kind of board that you use for podcasting. Ooh, so this is my new toy. Uh, that I got for specifically for podcasting. It's called a Rodecaster Pro. Uh, so it's a product from Rode, uh, which is an Australian company that creates a lot of sound equipment. Um, and it is like a full production board in this tiny little package that sits on your on your desktop or on your table. Um, and it has, you know, hookups for four microphones. You can add sound effects. You can uh, hook it up Bluetooth to your cell phone so that you can make outside calls as part of your interviews. Um, and it is designed for podcasting. So it uses like medium to low grade microphones, but you can go in and you can still change the settings to like compress properly, cut out background noise, cut out hisses, low filters. Um, you can cut out, uh, it, there's a de-esser in it. It just really makes like anybody who would walk into a podcast studio and isn't a professional speaker or doesn't understand how sound works to still sound like mm. radio quality good. I'm really excited about this new toy. Um, this office that I found that I was so lucky to find, it actually has two rooms. So the first room when you walk in is my new podcast studio. And then the second room is my larger office that actually has my my audiobook recording booth and my desk. And I have a couch for when I am just need a place to sit down and relax for a little bit. Um, so that's one space is totally dedicated to audiobooks. And the other is a space that I hope to be able to invite people into and help create podcasts uh, so that they don't have to invest in the equipment and the expertise and the sound side of things that they can just jump right into doing it um, because they have an idea and they want to. Oh, that's really cool. I wish we lived in the same city. I would totally come over and like hang out in your office (laughs) right now. Um, (laughs) So to get back to some of the more storytelling aspects of what you do and and the performance aspects, um, you have you and I talked about this before. You approach this as a storytelling style, which is not necessarily a full blown performance style, which sounds almost like you're listening to a movie or something like that. Um, Different actors have different approaches to how they do voices. Um, You do have different character voices. Uh, So how do you, you know, kind of manage those, come up with the different voices? I was thinking, for example, the character Eric in Want Me by Nev Wilder she has a description somewhere in the book where it, it says that he grew up overseas. So he has a bit of a, you know, eclectic accent, but she doesn't really specify the place that he came from or anything like that. So um, how did you, you know, how do you approach creatively choosing what he's going to sound like? 
So finding Eric's voice was a unique experience because it was my first time working with Nev. I think it may have only been Nev's second audiobook. Um, so she was very new to it as well. Um, and finding Eric was a challenge. And I will say this. I don't think she's going to mind me teasing her a little bit on this podcast. Um, that one of the least favorite things a narrator can see in the manuscript of a book is anything that sounds sort of like he had a slight fill-in-the-blank accent. <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> he had a slight accent. <laughs> Could he just have the accent or not have the accent? Why does he have a slight accent? And I, I come to that too from like I had um, you know, I had a, an English teacher when I was in middle school who came from Britain, and and she had been in the U.S. for over twenty years, and she still had a very pronounced British accent. So it's always to me like that thing, like well, they've been here a while, so their accent's gone away. It's like, eh, not really. That's not my, I mean, that's not my experience. Um, the, the reverse of that too is that some people who are able to, to code switch will do that. So it depends on who they're around. But if they're in you know, everyday life and they don't want people to know they have an accent, well, then their accent goes away altogether. So this concept of like a slight accent always vexes me because it's like, I don't know what that means. So note to authors. I, I don't get what you mean when you say somebody has a slight accent, because to me, they either have it or they don't. They've either worked to get rid of it or they just have the accent that they have, and that's fine. Um, but that being said, so yeah, so he had some sort of vague European background. So that was, after I read the text, one of the questions that I sent to Nev being, what, like, where are you thinking he's from? You know, like, or where was he stationed? France, Norway, England? You know, and that's where she said, like, I was thinking sort of like vaguely English. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, and so that's what I went with. But that was just her input. She gave me a little bit more information than what was on the page. Um, and it also would have been totally fine for her to say, like, I don't know, do whatever you want. You know, but she had an idea of what he kind of sounded like and she communicated that. And that's what I went with. So... Well, I have to tell you, I think you pulled it off because I was when when you first started doing his voice in the book, I was like, oh, yeah, he's like a army brat kid or something. He has like a little trace of something. And so your choice in that moment, it, it wasn't in any way different than what I imagined. It was like it kind of just manifested this sort of vague thing that you have in mind. So I, I thought you pulled that off. But what do you do when you see an accent on the page and you're like, oh, this character is going to be Irish or Scottish or mm -hmm. something? Do you, like, how do you approach pulling off an accent? Do you go and listen to a bunch of people who speak that natively and, and try to pick up inflection? What do you do? Sure. Well, first of all, I will say there are uh, reviewers online who would say it's up for debate whether I ever pull off the accent. <laughs> um, but uh, most of the time, and again, this is where the best professionals that I have gotten advice from, people who have done this for much longer than me, will be the first to say, like, you want to think about it, you want to work on it, but at a certain point, you let it go because it's not going to be perfect. You didn't grow up in Ireland. You didn't grow up in Scotland. It's not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Maybe the only exception to this is Joel Leslie, who grew up 
on an island in the Caribbean where it was like nothing but people from all over Europe. And so he literally grew up listening to every kind of accent there yes. is. So he, you know, he has, and he also has a theater background and has studied linguistics to a point where he can clinically dissect an accent and bring it to you. The rest of us, um, I think, are pretty lucky if we have an affinity for it. And many people will say they simply don't, and therefore they don't try to do that. Uh, if if it's a main character in a book that has an Irish accent, even I at this point would probably be like, no, I'm not doing a whole book that's an Irish accent. If it's a side character that gets to come in and out, by all means, I will I will do my research. I will do my homework. Maybe I'll schedule a session with Joel if it's something I've really never worked with before um, so that he can help me out. And then I will uh, approach it with uh, as much respect and integrity as I can bring to it, knowing that it's not going to be perfect and that uh, I will probably mess up the way they say some word at some point. Um, and that most of the audience who's listening to that audiobook is just as American and ignorant as I am, and they're not going to catch it. So you have to put in the work and then at a certain point say, I'm going to let it go. I think I'm very lucky in that I am a singer and I've been a musician for most of my life. I think a lot of nailing an accent is understanding the musicality of how those people speak. Um, so it's not just about what vowel sounds change or how you say certain consonants. It's also listening to the music of how people speak. And I think I've been able to hear that and um, mimic that fairly well. And uh, also because I'm from Wisconsin, uh, the first thing I had to do when I wanted to perform or sing was get rid of my own accent. So that was my first accent training was to stop sounding so Wisconsin-y. What are your feelings about real gay voices being portrayed in media, especially ab about us when people are performing us? What are your feelings about that? Well, so this is, I think, part of a larger cultural conversation that's happening right now. Um, where like own voices media is becoming important. Um, we are recognizing that like it's not okay for Caucasian actors to play Asian, or it's not okay to interchangeably treat Asian actors, you know, a Chinese actor playing a Korean actor, a uh, Korean character. You know, we're starting to recognize that there is some integrity and some dignity in having a story told by somebody who has some lived experience in that life. That being said, I'm also an actor, and I understand that one of the great things about being an audiobook narrator specifically is that I get to represent all sorts of people whose life I have no relation to. I am playing men, women, gay, straight, from every background and uh, nationality that there is. I mean, if I have a, the career in this that I want to, I'm going to be representing everybody on the spectrum. And that's such a joy as an actor to get to think about and do. But I'm also a gay man. And to me, it's important that the gay men who are in these stories, um, you know, in these male-male romances, that they are treated with a certain type of dignity. And I'm, I'm not saying that a straight actor can't do that. 
Um, but I'm saying s- there is something special about the experience of hearing in a performance that that lived inness of of telling a gay story. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, as a gay man who also consumes this media, um, who has become a fan of the genre, that sometimes I can hear the difference. And I'm careful with how I say this, only because I don't want it to seem like I'm attacking other people, um, especially because, like, I could personally benefit if, like, more people were like, oh, I really want it to just be gay actors reading gay Mm -hmm. uh, romance. Because, like, that's not what I'm advocating for. I guess what I'm talking about is that there are times um, when it's mattered to me to hear a story from a gay man performed by a gay man because it feels in some way more real. What's your perspective on that? You know, I was going to say, you know, what I'm hearing there is it's not that there's anything missing or wrong with somebody who's a great actor portraying gay characters and stories with respect and skill, you know, like it's great. It's fine. But there's something extra. There's something special when you hear, say, for instance, Straight Boy, um, which is one of your audiobooks. Um, hearing your voice portraying that story, you and I talked about the fact that, you know, there we were looking for that you know, ancient Gordon Merrick paperback for that glimpse of something that we can identify with. Can you imagine having heard, you know, a gay narrator reading straight boy when you were a teenager, you know? Um, and like, I have that moment, um, especially with that book in particular, and, and you and I connected over this of just feeling like, there's just something ex- extra special, I guess I want to say. It's not that anything that comes close to that is wrong, but there's just something kind of all the stars align a little bit for us, and it makes us feel really seen. Yeah. Well, okay, and thank you, because you bringing up Straight Boy just helped clarify something about the way I feel about this, which is that you know, Straight Boy was a book written by a gay man about a gay experience, um, and it lives very much in the real world. A lot of male-male romance, and I do not say this derisively or in a derogatory manner at all, a lot of male-male romance is pretty pure fantasy, even if it's existing in, like, the contemporary real world, you know, structure. Like, it's romance. It is... It's not reality. It's hyper reality. It's people falling in love out of the blue and having perfect sex the first time. And like, no, that's not how real life works. Um, You know, so there are lots of stories that are there and they are entertaining and they are excellently written and they're full of characters that people fall in love with. Um, But maybe they don't exist in like the the hyper real world of like the gay lived in experience. Straight boy was one of those stories that I immediately fell for because there was something about it that was just so real. Like it's the story of a teenager that I was that exists today. And 
And I do think that I had an advantage when I auditioned for that because I'm a gay man who understood the character. So I guess the message that I would give to any authors who are listening is like maybe one of the questions you should ask yourself as you're searching for a narrator for your audiobook is what kind of story have I written and would it benefit from that lived-in experience of a narrator who has experienced the same kinds of anxieties and fears and discrimination that comes with growing up gay? And if the answer is yes, then it's something to consider. Again, not saying a straight actor might not nail it, but it's something to consider. And if the answer is no, like, no, I've written a high fantasy and it's it's really irrelevant because um, the wonderful thing about many of these uh, male-male romances that are out there is they don't really even take the time to deal with homophobia or discrimination. They just, they live in a world where like, you're gay, it's fine. Everybody around you is supportive. Um, and that's part of the fun of reading those books. And so maybe in those cases, it doesn't matter as much because the actor doesn't need to have experienced that fear, anxiety, and discrimination that might inform their performance. Mm. Do you have any advice or tips for narrators? If you could go back in time and sort of give them to yourself, what might that be? Yeah, um, don't use your real name. That would be number one. Use a pseudonym. Um, many uh, people use multiple pseudonyms, and that's fine, too. I just, uh, in hindsight, I'm realizing, like, hmm, I could have used a fake name, and people wouldn't be able to look me up in the phone book. Uh, so I would say <laughs> use a fake name. Uh, there is absolutely zero benefit to it being tied to your actual real human self. You are a voice in people's ears. Um, so use a pseudonym. The second thing I would say is, you know, be prepared to have a period of time where this is something that you invest more in than you get out of. And I'm speaking pretty specifically about financials. Um, you are going to need to invest in some equipment in some training. Uh, that might mean uh, just doing some online coaching. It might mean going to some seminars or some workshops. Uh, it might mean, you know, joining uh, the Audio Producers Association and going to their conference. You're going to invest more in this than you get out of it financially. So if it's something you want to transition to eventually full-time, know that you're going to have to work on the side to do that. Like, you're going to need a day job, I guess is what I'm saying, for a while. Uh, and then, if you're lucky, you'll be able to transition to making enough money to support yourself doing just this work, but it's going to take time. And I guess the other thing I would say, too, is, like, you have to invest in yourself and in your talent. Uh, you have to get coaching. You have to get coaching both uh, on the performance side, you have to get coaching on the technical side. And once you've invested in yourself, you have to value the work that you do. You know, part of the reason why there are so many, so many authors out there who have the impression that you don't need to pay anything up front 
for an audiobook is because there are narrators out there who are willing to do the work for free. They don't understand the value of what they're doing. If you're really interested in just getting some experience and not getting paid at all for the work of doing audiobooks, there are services out there that will happily take your volunteer hours to have you read books for the blind um, or for other library resources, um, and those are strictly volunteer areas. The thing is, you're not going to get any feedback on whether or not you're doing a good job, so that's why coaching is important because you have to you have to get some feedback from somebody who knows what they're talking about telling you whether or not you're doing a good job. But if you just want experience for no money, go do those volunteer things. The second you decide to do a book on ACX or or try to sell yourself to a publisher, there's no way to do that that isn't professional. So by the time you're putting your foot in the ACX pool, you are now considered a professional and you should be working for professional rates. And that, I think, is the toughest thing to hear for somebody who's starting out because they think, well, I don't have the experience. I don't have the, you know, the right to demand money for this thing that I'm doing because I'm so new. Well, if you've done all the right things, if you've invested in the time and the, the coaching, um, then yes, you, you are worth it. The product that you're going to put out is going to be sold to people. Like there's, there's no, uh, area on audible where somebody can go buy cheaper books because the person is less experienced. Like the book is going to be sold at full price because it's expected that you're putting out a professional finished product. Um, and if you feel you're not ready for that, well then don't tip your, don't tip your toe in the ACX waters yet. Cause that's, what's expected of you. Um, go get that training, invest in yourself, know that you're going to have to invest more than you're getting out of it for a while. That was a long rant. Sorry. <laughs> it was great. I have one more question for you. Um, what do you hope that your work contributes to the lives of your listeners? My hope with every book that I do to a certain degree is that People don't even notice the work that I'm doing because all they're getting out of it is a really great story. My, my job, I feel like, is, is to promote the words that the author has written and to bring that to life in some way for people. And so really the, the bulk of what I hope people get out of audiobooks comes from the story itself. I hope that whatever they're seeking in that story, you know, whether it's a happily ever after or uh, to read about the experience of somebody who's gone through something hard just like they have, um, or to lose themselves in a, a fantasy uh, that, they, that they can just enjoy. You know, I hope all of that's happening because they're getting the opportunity to read a book and their way of doing that just happens to be through an audiobook and and my job is to to give them that story and get out of the way kurt it is so awesome getting to finally pick your brain about what it's like to produce these audiobooks i've been so curious to hear all this tell everyone where they can go to find you online and also where we can find your podcast Sure. Uh, 
for my audiobook work, you can go to kurtreads.com. Uh, my first name is spelled K-I-R-T, which is a little unusual, so just make sure that you are spelling it K-I-R-T-R-E-A-D-S.com, and that will bring you to my website where you can also find all of my social media and all of the books that I've done. Um, and if you want to find my podcast on high school speech and debate, if that interests you, it is called Forensics Faces. So you can Google that and find the website or uh, search for it on any uh, podcast app and that should pop right up for you kurt thank you so much for coming on the show you're welcome it was my pleasure thanks again for listening to gayromance.show the mm author podcast you can subscribe in apple podcasts spotify stitcher or whatever app you prefer for show notes and links to the websites and books we mentioned please go to gayromance.show you can also find me at slaydejames.com. And I'll talk to you later.